Good evening. I'm Barbara Kane. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and I want very much to welcome you here tonight. Um, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and also our growing recognition that this has been a place of learning and culture over many, many centuries. It's a very great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight to this Insights Lecture, which is sort of what we call inaugural lectures. And it's a great pleasure to welcome... I don't think I have to introduce Adam, because my sense is that almost everybody in the audience knows him very well indeed. But it is a great pleasure to welcome <coughs> him here tonight. Um, Adam is the Professor of Political Economy in the Department of Political Economy at the University of Sydney, um, which he joined in 2014. The, the discipline of political economy is quite old at the University of Sydney, and I have to say I am old enough to remember the battles about its establishment in the 1970s and early 80s at a time in which, as Adam says himself, he was sort of growing up and playing on the waters of Manly and having a very nice time indeed. But I remember the kind of passion and intensity of the battle between the kind of the conservative neoclassical economists on the one hand and, and the kind of much more politically and socially committed political economists on the other. It seems to me that some of... Well, I don't know how much of that political commitment has gone, but the battles seem not to be being it's fought. Still there, it's still there, still there. Okay. <laughs> not, 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 not being fought out in quite the sort of violent way that, that, that we knew in my, in my early days here. Um, so um, Adam comes to us from, well, essentially from Wales, really, or Wales and the UK. Via Wales, yeah. Via Wales, yes. Um, a PhD from the University of Aberystwyth, where he had a, was also a postdoctoral fellow, and then he moved to Lancaster University and Nottingham before coming to the University of Sydney. He was the first of the sort of international professors to be recruited to the Department of Political Economy. Adam specialises in themes of political economy, state theory, and historical sociology, and their relevance in the study of modern Mexico and Latin America. His books include Unraveling Gramsci, Passive Revolution in the Global Political Economy, and Revolution and State in Modern Mexico, the Political Economy of Uneven Development, which won, I love this, which won the 2012 British International Studies Association International Political Economy Group Book Prize. And I, you, you one does deserve a prize for being able to say it. I just do that was longer than the book. It was. <laughs> okay. Um, um, the, 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 in 2017, his Revolution State in Modern Mexico will be issued mm. in a Spanish language edition. And he's currently completing a monograph on global capitalism, global war, global crisis. So I want very much to welcome him here tonight and to for his talk on a political economy of space and place. And I just need to tell you that this talk is being recorded by the ABC, so you'll be able to listen to it again afterwards. So, Adam, welcome. Thank you very much, Barbara. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, uh, for coming. And I want to uh, start this evening in terms of dedicating uh, the lecture to one of my own elders, past and present, uh, by paying respect to my father, David Henry Morton, uh, whose life I want to celebrate by dedicating tonight's lecture to his memory. Despite being a co-collaborator in our move to Sydney, he sadly died just two months before our actual departure came to fruition. So tonight would have been one of those nights when he would have had a front row seat, been very proud and probably very bored at various junctures, if I'm being honest, and it is to the celebration of his life that this lecture is dedicated. Finally, I also want to say thanks to Amy and Julie, who are here, and I want to convey a warm appreciation uh, to both for providing all the fun, the love, the laughter, and indeed the support in life 
and he's looking to much more of the same in the future as well. Okay, down to business, um, a spatial uh, political economy. In 2000, it was David Harvey in an interview who commented with some lamentation that although The Limits to Capital, published in 1982, was a text that could be built on, it was sadly, in his view, not taken up in that spirit. This is almost David Harvey wishing more citation metrics than he already has. The tangible melancholy in this comment seems somewhat incredulous in the years since, given the rightly justified centrality of David Harvey's agenda-setting work in advancing historical geographical materialism. For many, Harvey provides the hard excavatory work in providing three cuts to understanding first, the origins of crises embedded in production, second, the financial and monetary aspects of the credit system and crisis, and thirdly, a theory of the geography of uneven development and crises in capitalism, much of which I've actually been discussing for most of the day with my ECOP 2613 students. The result in and beyond the limits to capital is a reading of Marx that offers a spatial temporal lens on uneven geographical development. Put differently, a combined focus on space and time together for Harvey reveals the spatiality of power and the command over space as a force in shaping capitalism and the conditions of class struggle as well. So that's David Harvey from 1982 onwards. Closer to what is now home, Frank Stilwell, in understanding cities and regions in 1992, crafted the term spatial political economy, which I've adopted and adapted for today. Spatial political economy is a way of approaching the concerns of political economy in relation to cities, regions, spaces, and places. The exhortation here from Frank was to give political economy a spatial twist. And I have this image in my head here of Frank doing the spatial twists. Um, What he means by this explicitly is to develop a spatial political economy able to grapple with the relationship between social processes and spatial form. Moreover, the approach of spatial political economy is to do so in such a way that would have both a spatial and a temporal dimension. So to quote him directly, the hiving off of geography, the space dimension, and history, the time dimension, states Frank, has further impoverished the residuals available to political economy. Although there has been no lamentation forthcoming, to my knowledge from Frank, the notion of spatial political economy is, for me, a notion on which to build and it has been seemingly neglected. As Stilwell recognises, there is a difficulty in tracking the spatial element of social and economic life. It's hard work. For example, how regions can be analysed as intermediate-level constructions between a wider space economy and the uniqueness of place. How cities may be understood as mediations between state-civil society relations and how place-specific aspects of political economic life can be inserted and then understood within the different functions of capitalistic space. 
So in arguing for a political economy of space and place, my aim today is to begin or to recommence or to build on a contribution to spatial political economy. The result, hopefully, will be the avoidance of any possible lament that this notion has been neglected. In so doing, the question I have posed for today is, quote, under capitalism, how does the state organize space in our everyday lives through the streets that we walk, the monuments that we visit, and the places where we meet? Furthering the project of spatial political economy, I argue, moves us towards some form of answer in articulating an approach to the political economy of space and place. This is what spatial political economy can hopefully offer, an, an approach to understanding space not as something neutral, but instead of space having a history according to various periods, modes, and relations of production, and a distinctive function within capitalism, which I'll talk more about shortly. These are hopefully the issues that spatial political economy or an argument for space and place can address. So, the structure of today's lecture is to do the twist or the spatial twist in political economy more through elucidation than actual application, although I will kind of uh, do the latter a little bit. I want to explore a set of departure points derived from Antonio Gramsci, Walter Benjamin and Henri Lefebvre that will assist in developing, hopefully, a spatial political economy. <clears throat> These will be the three cuts through spatial political economy in the first part of the lecture. Just as Goldilocks engages the three bears through a progressive series of encounters, three bowls of porridge, Troy Henderson, three chairs and three beds, until each time finding the third just right, then my own encounter with Antonio Gramsci, Walter Benjamin and Henri Lefebvre will also, in these three cuts through space, similarly unfold until arriving at the just right, in my view, with Lefebvre. Quoting Henri Lefebvre from the production of Space in 1974, any definition of architecture, he says, itself requires a prior analysis and exposition of the concept of space. So my question is, how can the space of modernism, which is my specific focus uh, at the moment in my research, produced in the built environment of the 20th century to be understood? My latest research has been on the historical sociology and political economy of modern Mexico, which in increasingly is turned to the lived experience of architecture as a side project to the last monograph that I finished. Architecture in my latest research is therefore taken as a vector or a mediation that captures everyday lived relations in the production of state space. And my future research next year, when I'm trying not to smile too much on study leave, will be to take up as a resident visiting fellow of the Canadian Centre for Architecture in Montreal in 2017 to explore this focus further in examining the history of space and the specificity of state space ac across a range of modernist architecture in Mexico, uh, explicitly in the 1930s. 
So just as an aside, the ambition of this work is to work on modernism in Latin America in the 1930s in order to avoid the assumption of the straight or simple diffusion of modernist architecture from Euro-America to the periphery. Instead, my aim in this research, and a little bit of what I will talk about today, is to stress the multiple modernities that have shaped Mexico and wider geographical spaces as well. Hence, my focus is very much in this research on the local appropriations of modernist architectural movements, specifically in Mexico, not simply as a Euro-American implant, but as a process through which there is a localization of modernism and modernist architecture, which I think, and this is the claim that I'll make today, reverberates actually across wider geographical spaces as well. So background influences on this approach to the specificity of modernism and the hybrid architectural expressions in Mexico and Latin America obviously draw from people like James Scott, but also the work on Mexico of Mauricio Tenorio Trio, Edward Burian, Luis Carranza, Nestor Garcia Canclini, Nicola Miller, and Sarah Radcliffe, and the work that I still need to do on the geographies of modernity and not engaged with yet, Fernando Coronel, Enrique Dosso, uh, Annabel Quijano, and Walter Mignolo. So that's work still to be done. Beyond these three cuts, then, through spatial political economy, Gramsci, Benjamin, and Lefebvre, my aim is to then deliver three examples of modernism in specific uh, places. One of which is, of course, Mexico, and I will do that with some confidence and, and more detail, uh, but also where I'll take a little bit of a gamble for tonight, assuming I am among friends, I will talk about Turkey, uh, and Turkey's engagement with modernist architectural movements, but also because of where I am today, uh, Australia as well, focusing on Sydney. And then hopefully conclude and then have a well-earned drink. Okay, into the, the main part of the lecture. The first of three cuts through spatial political economy, here looking at Antonio Gramsci. Forays into Gramsci as a spatial theorist have focused more in my opinion, on general surface level of assertions about his relevance to space rather than a detailed exposition. And here I would include the work of Bob Jessup, Edward Soger, and Edward Said. <clears throat> More challenging, in my view, is to deliver precise excavatory work that can contribute to a wider demonstration of how processes of state formation in and through Gramsci's work prompted a reconceiving of space and place in his analysis of modern state formation in Italy. For Gramsci, this comes through his analysis of passive revolution and the ways in which Americanism and Fordism is being experienced in Western Europe in the 1920s and 1930s. What Gramsci delivers here is a history of modern state formation in Italy as an expression of the ongoing series of passive revolutions that have confronted that particular peninsula. He refers here to the organization of state power and class relations, as well as the very constitution of political forms to suit the expansion of capitalism. Passive revolution then here refers to a set of constructed and contested class practices where 
aspects of the social relations of capitalist development are either instituted and or expanded, resulting in a passive revolution, this contradictory combination of both revolutionary rupture and or restoration of social relations across different scales and spatial aspects of the state. So this is the definition, if you like, of passive revolution. And for Gramsci, it was the relationship between the urban and the rural that the reorganization of state power and associated class relations became relevant in understanding the expansion of capitalism as a mode of production in Italy. So to quote, he states, in Italy there have been the beginnings of a Fordist fanfare, exaltation of big cities, overall planning for the Milan conurbation, etc. The affirmation that capitalism is only at its beginnings and that it is necessary to prepare for it grandiose patterns of development. Captured here and elsewhere are the territorial, the spatial, the geographical dimensions of uneven development within the expansion of capitalism in Italy. We have here the reorganization of the labor process enacted by the introduction of new methods of rationalization, regulation, and disciplining, as well as their impact on familial arrangements, the gendered division of labor, cultural and ideological forms that were all manifested in the expanse of Americanism and Fordism. These conditions relevant to political economy of space and place construction also provoked Gramsci to, to produce one of his most fascinating vignettes, for me at least, on the scalar spaces of state power. Penned in 1930, Gramsci's interest here is drawn in one singular note, and it's a very short note, which is light relief for many students, I think, of what he refers to as the material structure of ideology. It's a direct quotation. So he's not interested in ideas on the one hand, materiality in the other, or base and superstructure. He's interested in the internal relationship of the material structure of ideology, not dividing uh, the two. In this one note, he says, he's interested in how the ideological structure of a ruling class is actually organized. That is, he says, the material organization meant to preserve, defend, and develop the theoretical or the ideological front. And he's very explicit, which is quite unusual for Gramsci, I think, in this one footnote um, from 1930, because paramount in his analysis is a reference to the role played by the press in general, publishing houses, libraries, schools, the church, various associations and clubs. We could add, perhaps, uh, the university, which are all part of this extended theory of the state that he's toying with in this footnote. In this same footnote, he even elaborates that the very spatial grid and layout of streets is significant in defining the material structure of ideology, right down, obviously, to the politics of street naming. And I think, obviously, in Sydney, in Australia, this has direct resonance. As he goes on to indicate, again, in this one note, all these factors, he says, should be evaluated in order, and I quote, to inculcate the habit of assessing the forces of agency in society with greater caution and precision. So I think this is a salutary 
um, contribution to spatial political economy. So the material organisation meant to preserve, defend and develop the theoretical or ideological front. But this isn't just a celebration of Gramsci. There are, I think, some problems embedded in his conception of passive revolution. There needs to be, for me, a critical questioning of the concept, particularly when engaging with alternative contexts outside of Europe. Specifically, Gramsci assumed that an instance of passive revolution occurred within processes of state formation where, and I quote, the impetus of progress is not tightly linked to a vast local economic development, but is instead the reflection of international developments which transmit their ideological currents to the periphery, currents born of the productive development of the more advanced countries. So I think here embedded is a problem of diffusionism, of this straight rolling out, if you like, of these uh, international developments to the periphery, with the periphery as... um, neutral receptors. So there is a problem here with diffusionism in terms of the straightforward implant of Euro-American influences and the associated ideological currents that derive from core to periphery. This imprint of diffusionist reasoning within the notion of passive revolution means that there are matters for me that are not quite just right with Gramsci when tackling a spatial political economy. And so here, I'll turn to uh, Walter Benjamin. As conveyed in Walter Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Mechanical Age of Reproduction, written in 1936, architecture is not idle. It has a history as a living force so that buildings can be appropriated in a twofold manner in order to comprehend state-civil society relations. First of all, an architectural site is made up of touch, and perception or sight in order to probe the social function of the built environment. So to quote directly from um, Benjamin, tactile reception comes about not so much by way of attention as by way of habit. And this is from this essay. The latter largely determines even the optical reception of architecture, which spontaneously takes the form of casual noticing rather than attentive observation. So what he's toying with here is what Gramsci separately would call common sense, the construction of those taken-for-granted assumptions. Benjamin calls it habit, habiting. Gramsci called it common sense. The quote goes on, Under certain circumstances, this form of reception shaped by architecture acquires canonical value. It's unquestioned. For the tasks which, which face the human apparatus of perception at historical turning points, cannot be performed solely by optical means, that is, by way of contemplation. They are mastered gradually, taking their cue from tactile reception through habit. So the encouragement here that Benjamin gives us is to cast our attention beyond modernist architects, to conceive, sorry, to instead focus on the habit of the collective behaviour in relation to the everyday material environment of architecture. So how is architecture actually received rather than simply conceived? Urban modernism then is vital for Benjamin because of the collective distraction it might acquire 
through commonplace habit or for taken for granted assumptions. Wouldn't it be better, he states in the Arcades Project, to say the role of bodily processes around which the artistic architectures gather are like dreams around the framework of physiological processes? So the predominant focus here is on the appropriation of architectural places to emphasize how the built environment is collectively experienced, both in terms perhaps of abetting a given order through alienation, but also in terms of opening up, and this is the Benjamin sort of spatial twist, opening up a redemptive dimension to architecture that might be able then to consider or reconsider collective emancipation or even forms of architectural utopia. In his essay or in his theses on the concept of history written in 1940, Benjamin also addresses this notion of struggle through the redemptive aspect of architecture and how the history of past struggles can actually be connected to the present through architecture. So here Benjamin asserts a historicist approach to recover how history and collective remembrance might actually be carried by architecture and also provide a rupture to the uh, triumphal procession of victors. But as Adolfo Hilly argues in Historia Contrapello, A History Against the Grain, Walter Benjamin equally asserts how struggles over space may simply may not simply be about returning to or preserving the past, but actually about embracing those ruptures of redemptive hope in projecting alternative struggles over space. So the injunction in the theses on the concept of history, quote, is to brush history against the grain about recovering those utopian aspects transmitted by the cultural legacies of monuments. So this is where Benjamin is interested in exploding the continuum of history, to blast open the continuum of history as described in Thesis 16 from On the Concept of History, means interrupting the procession of the victors in and through monuments and triumphal arches of historical consciousness. The terrifying description of the Sigasaulo or the Victory Column, which was inaugurated in 1873 to commemorate various Prussian war victories in the SA uh, Berlin childhood from, from around 18, sorry, 1900, is one such example. Here, Benjamin contrasts the grace of the Statue of Victory that sits atop the monument with the dark frescoes of its lower part representing scenes of war that affirm suffering and the so-called continuum of history. As Michael Lurvey interprets, the ruling elite appropriates the preceding culture by conquests or other barbaric means and integrates it into its system of social and ideological domination. As Benjamin himself concludes in Paris, capital of the 19th century from 1935, which is a quote I love, we begin to recognize the monuments of the bourgeoisie as ruins, even before they have crumbled. Again, though, this approach to spatial political economy is not quite just right for me. It struggles to move beyond a focus on the perceived and conceived practices and representations of space 
to directly address or to not directly address a political economy of space. So this is where I turn in the third cut to Henri Lefebvre. The third cut into a spatial political economy and how the modern state binds itself to space is itself about the organisation of space and it involves for me recourse directly to the production of space by Henri Lefebvre from 1974. He asserts here, quote, monumental buildings mask the will to power and the arbitrariness of power beneath the signs and surfaces which claim to express collective will and collective thought. Congruent or in accord with Henri Lefebvre then, Capitalism produces an abstract space within which the city form becomes a cradle of accumulation and the centre of historical space producing surplus value. So the concept of abstract space is Henri Lefebvre's, I think, unique contribution to a political economy of space. It's able to grasp space as it enables, facilitates and projects direct and indirect structural forms of violence in and through the production of surplus value. For me, this is where we begin to engage a spatial political economy that, in my opinion, is just right. So abstract space embodies violence in structural terms, constituted by the grids, the nodes, the networks of property, production, and exchange through which the law of value exerts its abstract domination. So he's on the terrain here, I think, of the material structure of ideology developed by Gramsci. So abstract space encompasses both direct state power and violence, directed towards its attempt to command space, and the seemingly apolitical forms of space that we take for granted, that we habit within. The space of economic infrastructure and technocratic planning that functions to conceal violence, appearing as a neutral backdrop, but where the fair state's contradictions are smothered and replaced by an appearance of consistency. So dominant social practices therefore suffuse abstract space in order to reduce, or at least in an attempt to reduce contradictions and to diffuse a legitimating ideology throughout the social fabric. The urban form is therefore replete with dominant class rule, using abstract space as a mode of organising the means of production to generate profit. As such, the accumulation of capital within the urban form relies on the production of surplus value through this abstract space. For instance, through investments in urbanisation, in airspace or the tourism industry. Through the realisation of surplus value, for example, through the organisation of urban consumption and everyday life. And the allocation of surplus value, such as in ground rents. So if you forgive the joke, within abstract space as Gwen Guthrie might have had it, ain't nothing going on but the rent. You kind of need to do it with the shoulders, I think, but anyway, I won't. So it is the modern state that claims a right to the production of space, but it is contested. This is something that David Harvey traces in Paris, Capital of Modernity, 
through his history, ultimately, of uh, the Sacre Coeur, in stating how Paris evolved to, quote, as a capital city being shaped by bourgeois power into a city of capital. Going back to Lefebvre, the state uses space in such a way that it ensures its control of places, its strict hierarchy, the homogeneity of the whole, and the segregation uh, of the parts. So there is a logic of homogeneity that's at least attempted through abstract space by the state to arbitrate, occupy, map, control, reproduce, and contain. But this is where I think Lefebvre is also just right, because he opens up how those contradictions in the struggle for the right to space are contested as well through class struggle. So contiguous with the focus on the spatial role of the state for Lefebvre is also a concentration on the role and function of mimesis, imitation, and its corollaries through architecture. Elsewhere in the production of space, he talks about countries in the throes of rapid development, which have a tendency to destroy their historic spaces and then reconstitute them as cultural features for tourism, for leisure, notably in relation to monumental spaces. So he's interested in the question of space and the social relations of production and how they're condensed into monumental space, sometimes through analogous architecture. It is through architecture, argues Lefebvre, that one witnesses the promotion of mimesis, a form of reasoning projected through the built environment by analogy, and the reproduction of the social relations of production as a consequence. But the transformation of space also, of course, produces its own contradictions and its own historical peculiarities and vernacular forms, which he embraces. So alongside the abstract space of capitalism, with its homogenizing or attempted efforts at homogenizing and repetitive tendencies, there is a struggle over the right to, to the production of space and the snowball of what he calls spatial differences through class struggle. So this means addressing how the spatial role of the state also produces contradictions that shape counter spaces of resistance and struggle in an attempt to thwart uh, those state strategies. The argument today, then, for a political economy of space and place has to therefore ensure space for Lefebvre in endeavour to get spatial political economy just right by opening up not only the production of space and those attempts at homogeneity, but also those struggles, those class struggles over space. And I want to pursue that now through application uh, in terms of modernism cut three ways. And forgive me for the fast and loose history with um, some of the examples here. I'll be interested to see what you think. First of all, the architecture of revolution uh, in Turkey. The architecture of revolution of the 1920s and 1930s in Turkey collapsed two meanings into one. First of all, it combined a focus on aesthetic canons and rationalist or functionalist doctrines of the modern movement. So this moment here is revolution in architecture. But it also involved the building program of the new Kemalist regime in Turkey 
associated with the ruling Republican People's Party after 1931, which was known as architecture in revolution, in reverse. What this meant was a, was a transfer from the early Republican Turkish states that relied almost exclusively on foreign emigre architects and planners to shaping its own representative buildings through national uh, forms of architects, national vernacular architects. So there's a transition here, for example, uh, from the Germans of Bruno Taut, who was involved in designing almost all of the major state buildings in Ankara, the ministries, the schools, the hospitals, the material structure of ideology, which were meant to symbolize the achievements of the revolution or Martin Elsaser, another German who designed the national headquarters of the Sumer Bank from 1934 to 1935, which was the state's primary financial institution for jump-starting developmental catch-up. So there's a transition from these German foreign emigre architects to Turkish architects and state commissions under state developmentalism. This includes buildings such as the Municipalities Bank in Ankara, the Railway Station at Ankara, and the State Monopolies General Directorate. As well as, after the death of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in 1938, the most significant representation of state power through monumental architecture in the form of the ultimate national state monument of the Republic, Ataturk's Mausoleum, or the Anik Kabir, or Monument Tomb that was designed by two Turkish nationals, Emin Onat and Orhan Arda. The aim here, in terms of national vernacular architecture, those historical peculiarities, was to evoke a monumentalized version of the classical temple form, extending the history of the Turks back to pre-Islamic Anatolia, the Hittites, depicting the saga of the War of Independence, on the wall reliefs leading to the mausoleum whose colonnaded portico nevertheless had affinities for some with Albert Speer's architecture in Germany. So there's a transition here within Turkey from uh, the monumentalism of foreign emigres to that which is linked to more national vernacular forms under state development, developmentalism, at least in the 1930s. The case I perhaps feel most comfortable with is the Monument to the Revolution in Mexico City, constructed in 1938, here at its inception or inauguration, and today in the 21st century. Under the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz from 1876 to 1911, the French architect, Emile Bernard, was chosen to design a federal leg legislative palace, from which the wings would fan out left to right, with this being the central dome. This was originally going to be designed in neoclassical style with a double cupola structure at the centre made of iron, situated along an axial line linking Avenida Madero to Avenida Juarez in Mexico City to resemble the United States capital in form, but in terms of those axial uh, routes, uh, Paris. With the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution, this specific attempt to project state space and reorganized the geography of state territory remained abandoned. It was not until the post-revolutionary period that the state revisited this iron skeleton with its double cupola structure 
in order to actually articulate a new form of state space, a monument to the revolution. And again, we, hear, we see a nationalization. So there's a shift towards a Mexican architect, Carlos Obregón Santasilla, to construct a commemorative initiative as a monument to the revolution in 1938. There's also the employment of a Mexican sculptor, Oliverio Martinez, who uh, constructs these structures on the four corners of the dome, uh, who was renowned for his famous equestrian statue of Emiliano Zapata in the village of Cuautla, who then designed these four sculptures to represent national independence, reform, the redemption of the peasant, and the redemption of the worker. These sculptures further enforce a distinctly Mexican mode of expression, of um, blending state ideology with conceptions of modernism. And the space is hugely significant. The Plaza de la República uh, that surrounds the monument is the spatial site for remembering the revolution on Re Revolution Day in Mexico on the 20th of November. From 1942 onwards, so-called heroes of the revolution are interned within the pillars of the monument. And although the social function of the monument has varied across time, which I trace in a paper I've, I've just completed, most recently its role as a spatial fix for capital accumulation has been revisited and come to the fore. This involves a $25 million renovation of the site, the presence of a private company that now operates tourism within the location, and the role in which both the state and the private sector now extract surpluses from the site, commodifying the space and controlling the land proximate to it, not least through so-called urban regeneration and entrepreneurialism. So the nearby metro has been renovated at the cost of $74 million. The final example I want to give, coeval with the Monument to the Revolution, is the Anzac Memorial in Sydney from 1934 and today. The Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, Sydney, was designed by Bruce DeLitt and developed in collaboration with Rainer Hoff, an English immigrant who arrived from Nottingham to Australia in 1923. The Art Deco design reflects the interwar years marked by extensive large-scale governmental programs of social change and vitalist conceptions of modernity that combine sexualized male and female bodies drawn from a classical legacy but related to national identity and, at the time, utopian politics. The granite sculptures set into the corners of the superstructure are those of a naval commander, a matron, an air force officer, and a lieutenant. So these are on these corners here. You can just about see them. With the building itself both acting as a commemorative site but also an administrative center for returned sailors and soldiers associations. In Bruce DeLitt's own words from the book of the Anzac Memorial from 1934, the design is intended to express with dignity and simplicity neither the glory nor the glamour of war, but those nobler attributes of human nature which the great tragedy of nations so vividly brought forth, courage, endurance, and sacrifice. However, according to Virginia Spate, the monument, quote, denies memory in that it allows the spectator no space for his or her experience 
And, she goes on, it is indeed more a monument to the beliefs of the social establishment and the artistic avant-garde who controlled its making. And she wrote those words in 1999. But as one contemporary tourist pamphlet linked to the site states, this is very much a living memorial whose continued role as a site of remembrance, I think, is still to be tracked. What the late geographer Doreen Massey calls enforced space, the stories so far are still to be written about the Anzac Memorial. Not least because of the announcement in 2015 of plans to redevelop the site at a cost of 20 million Australian dollars to the NSW government, in addition to 19.6 million from the federal government, in addition to a further 7.5 million from the city of Sydney to complete the original 1930s vision of the memorial site. As Paul Daly has documented, the costs of the centenary Anzac 100 commemorations have been calculated in Australian dollars at 552 million to the federal and NSW state governments that equates to 8,800 Australian dollars for each Australian killed in World War I compared to 109 Australian dollars per British fatality or two Australian dollars for each German. And so my argument here about the memorial is that this is a one small part of the creation of the social and the physical infrastructures absorbing surpluses of capital within Sydney to support further accumulation. We can add here the Sydney Botanic Gardens projected to cost, or the renovation to the site, projected to cost $17 million. The Transgrid Poles and Wires sale, projected to cost about $10 billion. Barangaroo, projected to cost about $6 billion. And West Connects, the giant, expected to cost about $16.8 billion, all of which are providing spatial fixes for the absorption of surpluses in order to further, further capital accumulation. Okay, so a spatial political economy to conclude. Necessarily, I think, turns our attention to the realm of the everyday as an extension of capitalist social relations of production. As Henri Lefebvre states, in the production of space, the social relations of production have a social existence to the extent that they have a spatial existence. They project themselves into space and they become inscribed there. And in the process, they produce that space itself. The extension of the commodity in the market, where exchange value prevails as an implacable logic over everyday life, is therefore pivotal through these architectural forms. Across the grid of urban space, the street is regarded as a crucial place of movement and circulation, order and resistance. And so too is the monument. The construction of monuments can be critically appraised as reflective of repressive relations, the seat of institutional power laden with symbols that draws our consideration to such expressions of the built environment through the idea of habiting. But also monuments are part of the wider geographical landscape, a spatial fix for capital, along with other long-term projects in the formation of physical and social infrastructures 
that absorb surpluses in order to stave off crises. Equally, therefore, monuments are a site of collective social life, holding a multifunction that express an ethical and an aesthetic power, but also the potential, at least, for projecting an alternative space of difference, an awareness of utopic space and struggles over differential space. So the struggle for spatial political economy is therefore over such a critique of everyday life to contest these forms of cultural reproduction that includes architecture and monuments, but specifically in the renewal of the abstract space of capitalism. A spatial political economy, I think, can then also highlight these struggles over differential space or spaces of difference, challenging the right of the state to the production of space and the associated violent abstractions of capitalism. And on that note, I will conclude. Thank you. and for a wonderful lecture which made a very complex set of arguments extremely clear and showed much of the passion for political economy <laughs> and was particularly wonderful in having an Australian example. So thank you very much indeed for that. We've got time for some questions. Uh, you spoke a lot about the physical space and the way it's produced, but I'm interested in the way that we then interact with it ourselves with the political mm. struggle. So with the form of... Um, Basic political economy you've elucidated here, does that help us understand the successes and failures of, say, the Occupy movement? Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does, in the sense that, and I use a phrase from, from David Harvey here, um, there's a difference in terms of occupying space or a difference to be drawn between occupying space and commanding space. And ultimately... In a sense, the, the odds are stacked in the favour of the state in commanding space because although these sites may be occupied and indeed the monument to the revolution um, consistently has been occupied throughout its history from 1938 but particularly in the present over teachers campaigning for or contesting the neoliberal uh, education policies of the government in Mexico. They can't command space. They can occupy it temporarily, but of course then the violence of abstract space and state power can sweep them away. So there is a, a key distinction, I think, that Harvey draws there, which I find powerful. Yeah. Adam, thanks very much. Your, your examples, had you considered Scandinavia at all as another example, like the, the social democratic movements there in the 1920s and 30s and mm-hmm. that functional architecture and urban planning that's come from that. So is that an example? I said a straight yes to Matt. I will say a straight no to you. Uh, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't actually uh, considered uh, Scandinavia. That it's not a, a part of the world that I'm familiar with. Um, I, you know, I, I've gone out on a limb tonight to try and stretch my uh, empirical focus beyond Mexico, uh, which is not something I'm normally comfortable in doing. I am extremely drawn, actually, by the Anzac Memorial. I think it, it has so many resonances with the, um, the monument to the revolution in Mexico in all sorts of ways, historically but also contemporaneously. But I haven't actually discuss, uh, 
I haven't actually analysed or looked into these Scandinavian examples, so I apologise. Troy. Uh, I've got one comment just about the, the Anzac Memorial. I think it's nice that that space is contested by skateboarders every day, which really uh, annoys uh, a lot of officials. Um, and then, then my question is, just because I'm not particularly familiar with the literature, I was wondering if you could just flesh out this concept of abstract space mm. a, a little bit. In, in what sense is it abstract? Okay. I mean, first of all, on the skateboarders, um, I haven't weaved it into today's lecture, but Henri Lefebvre would actually say that reclaiming of space, so beyond official state-sanctioned ceremonies, that reclaiming of space for everyday activities is actually significant as well. Uh, maybe not in terms of contesting uh, capitalism, challenging the state, but in terms of that everyday recuperation of space. So the monument to the revolution is, has been reclaimed, actually, by everyday people. Uh, skateboarders, for sure, so they might annoy you there as well, Troy, uh, but footballers and, and, and all sorts of activities. Um, last time I was there, there was actually a marriage proposal uh, up in the, the, the top of the monument. So abstract space is the way in which Henri Lefebvre tries to conceive of the indirect and direct forms of violence which capital conducts through the extension of surplus value, or the expansion of, of capitalism. So this, this, for me, is where Henri Lefebvre can engage with the, um, the perceived and the conceived conditions of the production of space, so occupying, if you like, the terrain of uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, and maybe Gramsci as well, uh, but also the lived conditions of space within capitalism. So those conditions revolving around the extraction of surplus value, conditions of class exploitation. And Lefebvre, as a political economist, weaves that into his framework, I think, much more than the other two thinkers do. Um, now, so the argument could be, well, do you need Gramsci... Do you need Benjamin? Well, perhaps not, but then we wouldn't have the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears without those first two movements. So for me, it's, it's the political economy dimension of abstract space that really pushes Lefebvre forward. Uh, thanks, Adam. That was a great lecture, and I'm really excited by the prospect of building on the spatial political economy and contributing to that myself. Mm. That's, my question builds on Troy's, and it's in relation to your comments about... It's all about the rent. Um, yeah. I, I was going to remove that because I thought this is going to lead to a question from Joe on Capital Volume 3. Yeah. Um, no, I was, I was just interested in how, if you had any plans to develop that relationship and if you could expand on that in relation to... I know you've been doing some work on uh, the Fed in particular yeah. in relation to ground rent, so I was just curious to know what plans you have for that. So there, there is a project to expand... Um, or to engage with um, a colleague of mine, Stuart Eldon, uh, with Henri Lefebvre's writings on the rural, um, which are largely neglected. So if you look at the lecture today, it's all about the urban, almost exclusively about the urban. Um, but that doesn't really tackle the origins of capitalism in terms of the conditions of primitive accumulation uh, and the rise of agrarian capitalism, which I've been teaching today. Uh, so almost exclusively, Henri Lefebvre has been known as a theorist of the urban, but actually he wrote extensively about the rural, not only within, um, within Europe, within France, but also within Latin America as well. So there is a plan to actually begin to recover some of these writings, um, 
not simply in French, but also in Spanish, that Henri, Henri Lefebvre wrote on, on the rural, um, which will then engage issues of rent and ground rent um, uh, in the future. Yeah. Um, Kat. Thanks, uh, Adam, for your talk. Um, I had a question about, so you mentioned the way that the state structures space, but, um, and, mm. and the way that we might sort of think about topic... Um, yeah, ways of thinking more utopian, more, a more utopian way about space uh, on the basis of those kinds of analyses. Mm. I wondered what you thought about uh, the utopian potential of thinking about different ways in which capital structures space, because um, i give a quick example. Mm. Um, I was back in the UK in between semesters, and a friend of mine um, is an independent uh, shop uh, keeper in Sheffield, and had to move out of her premises because, you know, a large company built, uh, bought up the building and so on. Um, and I guess I was just wondering, it occurred to me at that time that when you look at sort of UK high streets and the shop, mm. front, shop fronts are all sort of uh, chain, um, chain companies and mm-hmm. so on, that these uh, small producers, independent producers of an earlier form of capitalism, sort of mercantile capitalism, perhaps those spaces represent a more utopian way of thinking about how commercial space or public space can be used. The independence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is that, does that offer a more utopian way of thinking about space too, or not really? It, it might do. I mean, Henri Lefebvre talks about um, how the indirect forms of uh, violence conducted by abstract space creates this homogeneity. So this is the uniformity of the, of the, the average British high street. Um, but he's also interested in focusing on... So, that's, so they're the, the isomorphic spaces, he calls them. But he's also interested then in the, uh, the heterotopias. Um, those spaces... I, I'm not so sure about high streets, but those spaces where difference exists which might then be the kernel for creating utopistic spaces. So he sees the heterotopias as a launch pad, if you like, into considering the utopistic spaces. So there's a possibility there. I mean, he also thought about the seaside in this way, as well as kind of embracing these spaces of difference. I think it all depends on the empirical, uh, on the empirical context here. Um, so these, these were formerly utopistic spaces, the monument to the revolution. You couldn't get a grander, uh, a grander um, claim than, than that. But they soon actually became represses directly of state violence. So people have been killed in the Plaza de la Republica, striking workers, students. So I don't want to collapse all the way into that framework of state power, but it depends on the empirical context, I think. for the presentation and uh, during your presentation I was thinking uh, mostly like uh, from my knowledge from Turkey mm. uh, which one of those like historical mo- mo- monuments are there to stay and which ones are not for mm-hmm. example from Turkey Sumerbank is not there anymore because of like the transformation from import substitution mostly because of to mm-hmm. export oriented growth strategy or for example the historical guard in Ankara uh, for most of the people it is a place where more than 100 people was killed because of uh, bombing like mm. recent bombing and mm-hmm. it, it has a different meaning now uh, for many of the people in Turkey so 
But Anitka Bir is there to stay and nowadays interesting day it's more like a reference than before. Mm. Uh, so I was wondering about the historical transformation of the meaning of those places mm-hmm. in time in line with the transformations of the political economy of those countries. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think um, Sumer Bank, um, if it's no longer there in, 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 in Turkey anymore, there's a direct uh, co- uh, equivalent in, in Mexico, which is uh, Nacional Financiero, which was the state development bank of the 1930s in Mexico, that's no longer in its original location either. Um, so there are these, what, what, this is why I included Doreen Massey, because I think she has a very good way of beginning to periodize these monuments, what she calls the stories so far about space. So we should be mindful that the social functions of these buildings can and do change. Sometimes they become obsolete. Um, so Sumer Bank, Nacional Financiera would be examples there. Um, Anik Kabir is there to stay um, I, I think that's a reasonably safe bet um, but of course the changing social function of that monument and who goes and why they go is clearly going to and clearly has changed I think within, within Turkey um, and that's part of the, that kind of rupturing then of the continuum of history I think yeah? so there will be contestations over the memory of Ataturk and whether or not he's still relevant for some and maybe not for others within the the forging of of Turkey right now. Thanks very much for your lecture, Adam. Um, Really enjoyed it. I wanted to ask you two kind of questions. I guess you can choose which one you'd like to answer if there's only time for one. Um, My first, which is, I guess, a a little bit more specific, is um, Henri Lefebvre was writing, I think the way that he saw abstract space was really about it being a kind of like a state enforcer, kind of like a hegemonic kind of like means of homogenizing the way people experience space according mm. to, like, I think mostly according to the logic of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of like a leveling field of like capitalism. Um, within like, and I, I guess like what I want to ask is within Sydney, and well, within Australia and Sydney specifically, I think personally um, capitalism doesn't necessarily explain uh, the whole like geographic history of how, how everything came to be. Mm-hmm. I think the main elephant in the room would, would be the, the colonial history of Australia. Mm-hmm. And I think you alluded to that when you talked about the naming of streets. There's like Macquarie Street, mm-hmm. which is named after a genocidal um, kind of figure in our history. But I guess I want uh, to, to wrap up the question. I want to ask you if you think that um, Lefebvre's uh, kind of like his analysis can be, uh, can be wielded to kind of like apply to also uh, the attempt to make a kind of colonial, uh, like a colonial ah, abstract okay. space as opposed to merely a capitalist one because mm. I think you see a lot of that happening, for example, in Redfern, the attempts to kind of like erase the indigenous history there or at least kind of, and also Brangaroo, you also mentioned there's also mm. a lot of that going on there too. So mm-hmm. that's one. So if it can be like a, an analytic tool that's not merely used to explain capital's um, homogenizing force but also colonial um, homogenization in other forms. Mm-hmm. And the second question, which is much more broad, is because that was so neat and tidy (laughs) my my second question is um, how like you're trying to spatialize political economy which is a really historically temporally focused uh, discipline Um, to what extent does that actually keep it as a distinct discipline from say Mm. geography Mm -hmm. Um, and is it do they then become the same thing thanks okay so um I did the great academic thing and didn't come with a pen. Um, so I'm going to try and remember your first question. 
Um, in the production of space, this is where I perhaps would... I mean, I've just argued all night that Henri Lefebvre gets it just right, but this is where I perhaps would depart from Henri Lefebvre. He has a, what I would call a commercialization understanding of the origins of capitalism. So he does look at forms of space outside of capitalism, but ultimately he sees capitalism as arriving as a consequence of the relations of exchange. Um, so where I think he gets it right is by focusing on abstract space as the geographical expansion of capitalism, surplus value, the extension of uh, value relations. And for me, that speaks to the context of modernism within the early 20th century uh, very, very uh, pertinently. So I kind of want to delimit Lefebvre and not reel him back. Um, I think you could do, but I think there are fraught prob problems with that. Um, and then the second question was about, just remind me... Um, Ah, disciplines. Yeah, that small thing about disciplines. Um, this is a perennial discussion that often crops up at major talks. Uh, I think political economy is interdisciplinary, if we want to use that term. Um, transdisciplinary, if we go with uh, Bob Jessup's term. But ultimately has a key focus for me in terms of heterodox or radical political economy, uh, which is to contest the um, appropriation, the, the production, the appropriation, and the distribution of value. And that, for me, is what is at the kernel of the enterprise of political economy, that despite perhaps this necessity to engage in, in an interdisciplinary way is distinctive about what our discipline is which is about those questions of value. I get to uh, oh, ask the right. next question, Adam, uh, but I can't resist prefacing it with the words, hear, hear. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Phew. I'd also like to add my voice to those uh, who expressed appreciation for a lecture of fine quality and uh, uh, thought-provoking character. The attempt to link uh, sort of an abstract uh, analysis of space with the focus on mm. particular architectural forms, specifically monuments, mm. is obviously the distinctive feature of your lecture. But mm. I'm just wondering if there's some intervening spaces that get missed yeah. in that process. Uh, yeah. uh, space is so general and place is so specific and particularly if you're talking about monumental spaces, mm. they're, they're uniquely specific. But the intervening spaces are all that boring stuff of everyday life. <laughs> the layout of suburbs, mm. uh, the, the urban redevelopment programs and so on that uh, affect people's lives. You're, you're positing that we can understand these in terms of value creation, value distribution processes. Yeah. And, and I would echo that thoroughly. But I'm just wondering what you see as the difficulty, perhaps, of moving back from monuments into a more general analysis mm. of the built environment. Yeah. I mean, that is a huge difficulty. Um, I don't really do that in the two cases that bookend the uh, applications. 
But I do do that in the, in the piece on the, the monument to the revolution in Mexico City. So I uh, at least try and insert that not only within a historical framework, but also a spatial, so uh, you know, a time a time framework, but also a spatial framework by addressing how those changes, contemporary changes at the site of the monument, its changing social function, its commodification, are actually part of the wider um, reconfiguration of, of Mexico City, um, which has been proceeding apace in terms of what's called an urban entrepreneurialism or, or gentrification. Uh, and that does involve then looking at the spatial grid of the city, uh, how there are crucial spatial arbiter, arbiters that create inequality right next door uh, to this particular monument, and then how there are other forms of um, spatial fixes for capital, which are more significant, perhaps, in terms of that absorption of surplus. So I think that work does need to be done. Of course, what I'm doing here is I'm taking a very, very small mediating aspect of that relationship between state and civil society and probably kind of... Um, I'm going to say exploding it, but uh, amplifying it for my own purposes. But I think that those additional scales, if you like, are absolutely crucial. Uh, I would suggest that a 1992 book is a good start on that front, which I opened the lecture with. Okay, well, um, I'd like you all to join me in thanking Adam for a wonderful lecture. Thank you. Ah, thank you.